smart, sharp, analytical people who are members of the inner circle um, of tiers two and three of this podcast um, and listeners, therefore, to the BungoCast Reading Club. Welcome. This is the final edition of the 2023 Reading Club. Apologies. We're a little bit late. We started it all a little bit late. It's kind of shifted over. But anyway, so this is, this is the last one of 2023. We're going to revamp things a bit for 2024, along with a whole bunch of other revamps. Um, that's to be announced soon. Keep an eye out. I'm going to keep trailing it until I actually have concrete news to give. But um, things will change, and they'll be it'll be exciting and fun. So keep an eye out for that. But that also means that the Reading Club will change a little bit. This will be announced in due course. So this is a way of concluding our 2023 syllabus, where we talked um, about freedom, uh, mortality, secularism uh, in the first third of the year, and then we moved on to questions of uh, crisis and legitimacy in the middle part, and now we're talking about uh, imperialism, international relations, and China's rise. So this is, because it's the last episode of the year, you'll know that, uh, you'll notice that we're doing episodes kind of three and four combined. We're doing the whole last part, second half of the book of um, Adam Smith in Beijing, Lineages of the 21st Century um, by Giovanni Arrighi. As a way of concluding this, and you know, it's a book about China's rise, about uh, written and you know, to, published in two thousand eight. So there's lots to reflect on in terms of what has happened in the interim. But it's also a kind of a nice way to round this out because it's forward looking. Um, whatever, whatever else happens, China's China's going to be there. <laughs> With that platitude <laughs> out of the way, Phil. Hey, thanks, Alex. So, as Alex mentioned, it is uh, the last of our um, of our old model reading club, and the second part of of this book. And I think, I mean, it's not just. I mean, it's not just the appeal of the book for me, at least. And I think part of the rationale for choosing it is not just the fact of its, um, not just the fact of the centrality it gives to China, but also the fact that so much of the argument hinges around the relative decline of the US. Um, and that is very much, obviously kind of very much being talked about now as the US, as we're talking now, I mean, the US is notoriously um, struggling to supply both Ukraine and Israel. At the same time, it's two close allies that are embroiled in their own regional conflicts. And so all that discussion of the decline of the US is very palpable at the moment alongside the far more significant role of China in the global economy now compared to when Origi wrote the book back in 2007. I suppose the other thing is that's um, also part of it is that the intervening period between now and then also saw, I mean, and this is something we'll talk about in a bit more detail because I think it is actually a useful historical corrective, I suppose, to some of the contemporary discussion. But Origi was writing at the time of the, um, just before the US election, 
that would come and um, sweep Barack Obama to power. And Obama kind of gave was perhaps the last, um, perhaps the last kind of, um, the last blast of sunshine on the peak, I think, of US unipolar liberalism before the sun set. Um, if I can put it in slightly portentous terms, looking back. Um, but I want to talk a bit about that, about how far the intervening period of the Obama years has, um, how that affects the argument and how that affects our kind of retrospective assessment of the left, I suppose, um, and also US decline, if the US is indeed declining. Okay, so with that throat clearing out of the way, what we're going to do is we're talking through part three first. And what I want to do is just briefly summarize some of the material from the relevant chapters before, as we've done previously, before extracting some of the themes I want to talk about more. And as with before, if readers feel that there's anything that we haven't paid sufficient attention to in the discussion, by all means, readers, I say readers and listeners, um, by all means, feel free to tell, you know to let us know um, and we'll try and come back to it. There the are readers bonus. too. This is the reading club. Yes, readers and listeners. Thank you, Alex. And then we'll come back to it in the um, Alpha Bonus Bonus. So part three is hegemony unraveling. And it's, again, divided into three chapters. And essentially, it's looking at the decline of, I mean, it's the centerpiece of the book with respect to the thesis on US power. And as the name, as the chapter, the first chapter in that section, Domination Without Hegemony, implies, it's mainly hinged around using the Iraq invasion for the idea that American hegemony is over because it's being substituted with the use of direct force with all the kind of consequent uh, reverberations in terms of expenditure of effort, costs to US empire, but also the alienation that it precipitated among both allies and in the global south, for want of a better term. So domination without hegemony is, I suppose, Rigi's summation of the Iraq invasion. The use of military force was a sign of the weakening of American hegemony. And he talks through it. He talks about how the US was, how the invasion, at least the first Gulf War, was intended to exercise the specter of Vietnam, the defeat of the, this kind of the defeat for US empire by a popular guerrilla insurgency in the South. And that this pattern seemed to repeat, or the, Spectre of Vietnam wasn't exercised, in fact, by the Gulf War of the early 1990s, not least because Saddam Hussein wasn't thrown out of power. And so there was the need for the return, and that essentially the um, the terror attacks of 2001 provided the pretext for this for this expenditure of military power. He talks through it in some detail, and particularly, I think it's... Um, you know, in terms of being a short summary of the failures of American of the American war efforts in Iraq, it's um, excellent. You know, I mean, it's not especially not especially um, drawn out or complicated, but in terms of talking about the failures of counterinsurgency, the brittleness of U.S. of the U.S. effort, and the fact that they were fighting an enemy that was far more far weaker, more fragmented, and less technologically sophisticated than the Viet Cong which is to say the Iraqi insurgency, all of that is to underscore the, 
I suppose, yeah, the hollowness of American power in this period. And also, I mean, it is, you know, one of the sections in the chapter, and again, it's kind of fascinating to look at, given this is something that's still being, you know, very much being talked about now with the regional fragmentation of the global economy. But he talks about the strange death of the globalization project. And he talks through this with the Bush administration in particular. And this is something I want to come back to because it's something that is um, easy to forget from from our point of view today, but the um, the reaction to the Bush and the unhinged character of the reaction to the Bush administration in that period, even before, in fact, even before, you know, the launch of the war on terror and the terror attacks of of September two thousand and one, it kind of sh- it kind of um, shadowed or um, prefigured Trumpism. And it's something we've picked up on in some of the previous discussion, but I wanted to return to it because Arigi addresses it most directly here. Um, so this is, a, it talks, I mean, this is, it combines the, um, it combines a discussion of American military failures in Iraq with the political economy of the time, including the rise of China, as well as um, talking through some of Arigis, I suppose, what he considers to be his fellow travelers. And there's this odd, and again, this is something I want to return to, but there's long, I think, been particularly among the Marxists associated with the New Left Review, a kind of an interesting and revealing in some ways, I think, reverence for um, US realists, and particularly John Mersheimer. Um, so Rigi is effusive in his praise of John Mersheimer's book, The Tragedy of Great Power Politics. Um, and Mersheimer is someone he comes back to, and Mersheimer is still very much a kind of a, um, even more so, a more prominent public figure now than he was back then. Back then he was um, famously a critic of the of uh, the Iraq war from the perspective of US national interests, and he's still a critic of American foreign policy, both with its support of Israel in Gaza, but also even more so over Ukraine. So there is um, this odd kind of affinity between Marxists such as Arigi and Mersheimer, who, despite on the surface, you know, there would seem to be little kind of political or theoretical resonances between um, a world systems theorist so deeply rooted in Marxian approaches to political economy and a theorist rooted in political, you know, I mean, purely kind of security dynamics at the international level. And so anyway, it's something which is interest curious, I think, and worth talking about. Chapter eight is, um, he talks through the, his essentially his reconstitution of a Marxist theory of imperialism, drawing heavily on um, David Harvey's idea of the spatial and temporal fix that capitalism goes through in Harvey's reckoning. He also talks a bit about the um, he talks or develops more some of Harvey's ideas, including the idea of accumulation by dispossession, the use of state power to achieve certain, um, to prop up and maintain a capitalist accumulation through the direct use of state violence and force rather than through this operation and logic of the market. And so this is, I mean, it's a fairly conventional, I think, for the most part, Harveyite account of of imperialism in this period. And Harvey's David Harvey's theory of imperialism was the most 
was enormously influential at the time um, of the of the Iraq invasion. Uh, Arighi qualifies it in some respects. He kind of emphasizes his own deeper historical perspective. He um, qualifies, he kind of introduces Hannah Arendt's, some of Hannah Arendt's political theory as an appropriate complement to um, the idea of uh, capital accumulation as this endless and limitless process that requires similar kind of logics of infinite power accumulation. And the two things kind of parallel each other. So he develops some of that. But that aside, it's um, a fairly, I think, a fairly straightforward account of of Harveyite theories of imperialism. And it would be familiar, I think, to, I presume, plenty of our listeners and readers. And then the next chapter, the final chapter in this section, and I think in some ways the most kind of intellectually intriguing particularly for me at least. I mean, and maybe that just reflects my own intellectual interest or perhaps um, perhaps others will agree with me. But it's the idea of the world state that never was. And here he uses, he kind of takes, for, puts forward this thesis that the American state is in different moments itself the proto-form of a world state or that by virtue of its sheer kind of stupendous military might and economic power that it's been thrust forward into being the um the kind of paradigmatic form of a world state and this i think is kind of genuinely it's it's a genuinely fascinating proposition and even if it's something which can only be kind of broached tentatively and teasingly i think or it's very tantalizing some of the thoughts that Dorigi develops and perhaps doesn't go far enough with i think in this chapter it's something even if it doesn't have any kind of clear political upshot i think it's an intriguing premise the idea that we're kind of trapped in a um in some kind of uh, historical antechamber between the beginnings of a world state and the inability to actually realize that political project on the scale that's necessary. You know, it's a fascinating, uh, it's a fascinating kind of proposition. And one I think that's worth drawing out a bit more. So before, before we talk a bit more, uh, before we kind of slice a bit more deeply into some of the content and extract some of the themes I wanted to talk about. I wondered if you guys had anything to add onto a few more adornments, perhaps, to the skeleton I've just uh, set up. Yeah, I can um, have a go at adorning that skeleton a little. I mean, one thing, uh, or I, I don't know if either of you have seen Generation Kill, this David Simon no. TV show. No, I know the can... one, I never, but I never, I never watched it for some reason, actually. It's a good point. I had this recommended, albeit after a few glasses of wine, by by a listener who said it was the best thing on TV they'd ever seen, and so watched this fairly recently. And it is it is brilliant. It is a really fantastic account of the you you have these kind of reconnaissance marines kind of going through um, Iraq and sort of I, I, I won't give too much away. Not that there's all that much of a plot, but it just captures the 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 kind of i don't know the disorganization and the kind of the pointlessness and and just um you know they they didn't they didn't have a plan like it it really kind of it doesn't make these points too explicitly and it's all, it's got great characters and that's why it's good but it just made me think like this is the kind of the the counterpart of this i mean i think this is the best part maybe of the whole book this part 3 hegemony Un- unraveling 
and because it's I think it's the most kind of important thing in a way that he he deals with there's a lot of the longer term historical things but this is the real crux of it like his model of you know what is hegemony and how is that like underlain by all these kind of political economy and and kind of global politics factors this is the the meat i think of a lot of it because it's it's kind of the the u.s decline and understanding why that happens and what the consequences are going to be so yeah i think i think it was a really there's obviously a a lot to a lot more to talk about with the project for the new american century and and what actually happened in iraq but i think yeah it was yeah i think my favorite part of the book for what that's uh worth yeah, no, I, I I agree with that. I also thought it was my favorite part of the book, not least because it's a book that is, is challenging insofar as it brings together lots of different themes, quite divergent and does um, quite deep dives into each of them uh, and has an argument in each of the parts. And then, you know, maybe we can come to this at the end when we evaluate the book a bit. But, you know, it's a question as to how well the argument as a whole fits together because he's doing all these different things. You know, he's doing kind of classical political economy and the theory of, you know, Adam Smith in the first part. And then he's talking about the economics of global turbulence and crisis and the notions of hegemony in the second part. And then, you know, the third part, as, as um, you know, George has just mentioned. And then there's also the stuff about, you know, Chinese ascent in the, in the fourth part, which we're going to come to at the second part of the episode. So I almost feel like taking, you know, taking bits from the parts I'm not sure how much I'm going to take from the whole the book as a whole. We'll come to that anyway. Well, hello, listener. I hope you like what you're hearing. It's a short excerpt from an episode that's available only to subscribers. Want to support BungaCast and get at least two original episodes a month? Sign up at patreon.com slash BungaCast right now. $5 a month patrons get access to exclusive episodes like our in-depth analyses of present history. You know, the big stuff that's happening right now as well as chats with our regular guests, extended interviews with the key thinkers trying to understand our world today, and much more. For $10 a month, you join the BungoCast Reading Club, the place for those of us who are serious about equipping ourselves with the necessary intellectual tools for understanding the world and seeking to change it. Phil, George, and myself, Alex, look forward to seeing you there. Patreon.com slash BungoCast.